welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hi there, listeners. Now, in today's episode, I'm speaking with Mark Chandler. Now, Mark has been the General Counsel and Chief Legal Officer at Cisco for the last 20 years. In fact, he's had a 25-year career at Cisco. And so he talks about what stands out for him in that career, the importance of teamwork, the culture that he helped develop at Cisco, and the impact of technology on not only the delivery of legal services for Cisco, but the way in which the in-house legal team there operated. So some fantastic insights. And he also touches on what lies ahead for him and how he can hopefully leverage both technology and his network to improve access to justice. It's a fantastic discussion. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, Mark. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Great to be here. Now, Mark, by the time this show airs, the world would have heard that you've retired or announced your retirement after 20 years as General Counsel and Chief Legal Officer of Cisco. So firstly, congratulations on an outstanding career. Thanks so much. I've had a heck of a lot of fun and felt that we've been able to make a difference. Yeah, we'll certainly do a bit of a deeper dive in that. But just before we even get to that, right at the beginning of your career, you had some time. You had some time at Siemens. That was around the time the Bosch Fellowship, and you even had a few years of a legal practice, I think, before that. Take us way back to that early time. What stands out for you there? And perhaps a bit about whether that was formative of your future career. Take us back to there. After law school, I spent a year clerking for a dean at my school who was a special master to the U.S. Supreme Court on a boundary dispute between U.S. and Alaska. And then I joined a small law firm. And I I learned pretty quickly in that time that I didn't love practicing law in a law firm. I just didn't feel that close to the clients and ended up going to Germany on a fellowship sponsored by the Robert Bosch Foundation because I'd studied German in high school and was interested in having the chance to live in Europe. I worked in a German government agency for a few months and then at Siemens. And I loved being inside a company. I loved the fact that we actually built things. And they offered me a job. And then I worked for Siemens for a couple of years after that. And what was formative was really how much I loved being inside a place that had a clear mission related to serving consumers and, and building actual products. And and that then led me, after a couple of years doing that, to wanting a job in California where I lived at the company there and ended up becoming general counsel of a disk drive company called MacStore in 1988, a long time ago. Yeah. And so the, then moving to the time at Cisco, there's a couple of things that, that kind of jumped out to me there that I'd like you to touch on. First, I thought what was interesting is you spent a couple of years as the worldwide director of sales. Tell me a little bit about that. I know it was only a couple of years, but I just thought that was an interesting part of the career. And was that something Cisco saying, we want Mark to get into the business? We wanted to understand you know, the most important thing about business sales. Tell me a little bit about that. How did that come about? Actually, Jim, I, I think everyone who's in a company needs to be focused on where the paycheck comes from, and that, yep. that's from sales. My yep. job was leading the sales legal organization. That is the folks in legal who supported sales. Right, yep. I had been general counsel of a company called Stratacom, which we acquired in 1996, and there already was a general counsel at Cisco, and I was given the job of leading the support for legal which is focused on the sales organization for Europe. So I moved to Paris for two and a half years, supported the entire European Cisco sales organization and making sure their deals got done. And as I said, 
I love doing that work. I love being close to the customers. And by making sure our contracts got finished and finished on time, I was able to contribute to that. That was a heck of a lot of fun too. I enjoyed the, the energy and the growth that was going on in the company. There were nine people in the Cisco legal department and I was the first person ever assigned to be working outside of San Jose. And after two and a half years doing that, I came back to California and was asked to lead support for the sales legal organization worldwide. And I did that for about two years as well before becoming general counsel of the company. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I expect over the course, no doubt, the last few months, you've had a chance to reflect, reflect on the career. What stands out for you after 20 years as the GC and the Chief Legal Officer at Cisco? What, what is it that you end up remembering? Well, I think a few things. First off, I've been incredibly blessed to work with a great group of smart, hardworking, and highly ethical people. The level of integrity at Cisco is very, very high. People say what they think, they tell the truth, and it makes it the easiest general counsel job in America. And that's particularly true of my two CEOs that I've worked for as a general counsel, John Chambers and Chuck Robbins, who have never, ever wavered from the view that you do the right thing and you, then you deal with it. But anything you try to avoid dealing with or you think you can cover up, that, that's going to fail. So yeah. that meant that we could be transparent about what we were doing, forthright in what we were doing. It made the job a pleasure at that level. So that's the first thing. The second thing is recognizing what's going to be successful in leading a legal organization and and what tends not to be. And I think the most important aspect of that is staying focused on the fact that what a company needs from a legal department is good business advice that's informed by a knowledge of legal principles. No one wakes up saying, well, I think I want a lawyer today. What they want is to solve a business problem. And oftentimes there's useful legal input to solving a business problem. But as a member of the legal department, what I've tried to help my staff to understand what I've always reminded myself is I'm there to solve business problems, do it in a way that's going to be not just legally acceptable, but something we'll be proud of, and that allows us to move ahead with our business successfully. I've heard you talk about that before, actually, the importance of bringing a business-like-minded approach. And in fact, even as early as law school, teaching young lawyers not necessarily think like lawyers, but to at least be able to think like business people. So I take it that's part of the same theme there. Well, I've I've said that when I've been at law schools and asked what I think law schools need to do better. And my answer is teach law students not to think like lawyers, but to think like clients. Yeah. And really, that can be any client, not just businesses. But remember what problem it is that your client is trying to solve, of which the legal aspect may only be a piece. It may be the whole thing, in which case it's find it and only think of the legal piece. But that's not going to always get you to the right place. Yeah, it's funny. I think you do, certainly in those early formative years of being trained as a lawyer, tend to think of, well, you view any lens through the legal lens and you think that's the most important and the biggest part of the lens. So not being able to actually see that in the context of the problem that is looking to be solved by the client who prefer not to have any legal issues. That's something which I think the earlier you can get the legal team working on that, the more successful you're going to be. I couldn't have it better myself. <laughs> Talk to me about some of the challenges. What are the challenges that stand out for you over the last 20 or so years as being uh, the most senior legal position in, in Cisco? Well, the biggest responsibility that you have is to uh, nurture a great team. Yeah. Because in a large company like Cisco, you, you can't do it all yourself. And there's no, no illusions about that, which means really three things to be successful, three challenges to overcome. And the first is to hire people smarter than I am. And 
There are a lot of people on my staff who would say that's a low bar. But <laughs> what I mean by that is people who know how to do things that I don't know how to do. Yep. There's no shortage of things I don't know how to do. So I have to hire people who have expertise who then you can trust to bring that expertise to bear. Second, you need to create an environment where they want to talk to you, where they want to tell you what's going on and keep you informed and go solve the problems for the business folks that they have expertise to help with. And third, you need to feed them and take care for them no and make them want to be around because the longer they're around, the more human capital they build up and the better the information they give you. And all those three elements, those three challenges you have to meet to be a successful chief legal officer in a big company, all come together to one point. And that is that your job as general counsel is really to provide strategic event advice by having a sense of what the five next big opportunities are that the company has, the five next big risks, and know how to mobilize resources to seize the opportunities or to mitigate the risk. You can only do that if you're getting information from 360 degrees around you. You can only do that if you have a team that has all that expertise, that's willing to talk to you about what they know, yep. and who stick around for a while. So that's the, the virtuous circle that I think is there. And it's those are not simple tasks, any of them. I've heard you talk a lot about culture, and I, you haven't mentioned that word yet, but that's I think that kind of 360 virtuous circle that you're talking about and that kind of feedback, it must go to the heart of the culture of the team that, that you're building. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that, I know that's dear to your heart, and to deliver those kind of outcomes, it must be a core part of the principle that you have amongst your you know, approach and the team. Well, if, if actually a culture aspect goes back a little further in our discussion than yeah. that, then because when I talked about the ethics and integrity of the yeah. folks at Cisco, and particularly the CEOs that I've worked for, that is the heart of the culture of the company, is that sense. I, I used to joke that I thought John Chambers' mother must have made him recite the golden rule every night before he went to bed, because his approach was always to ask, what would we want to have happen if we were in the other guy's shoes? Yep. By forcing everyone to think that way, it led us to, to great results. So I think that's the first principle of the culture you want to have. You want to have a culture of transparency, of openness, of forthrightness, of dealing with problems directly when they come up, and of being committed to the fact that in the long run, you're going to be judged by how you treated people and how you, how you did the job. So that's number one on culture. Number two was in our department to work hard to create an environment where people could move around from space to space in the department, where people knew each other, worked with each other. And I've tried to do a few things in that respect. One is I try to know everybody in the team. There's about 400 people now. And with COVID, wow. we've probably added yeah. several dozen in the last year who I haven't had a chance to meet in person. I am doing video roundtables with groups of new employees each month so I can get a sense of who's joining the team. I've gotten so many letters, emails in the last couple of weeks from folks on the team saying, you know, you remembered when something happened to me or you always knew who I was. And that was amazing. How do you remember yeah. so many people? And my reaction was, you know, that's my job. I mean, yeah. that's what we're about is the people. We spend more time with each other waking hours, at least during the week, than we do with our own families. And if you don't remember that, that that's what people are giving when they come to work every day, you're not going to have a motivated, committed, happy team who are able to do those things that I described that are essential to doing the general counsel's job. So that's, a, that's another part of the culture is knowing each other, seeing each other, respecting each other, and being able to feel that, that we're, on, we're in common cause with each other. 
couple of things that stand out for me there. The, the, the top-down, I mean, culture is always top-down and you know, I love the way you talk about coming up from the CEO right down. And, and the second thing that stands out for me is when culture then delivers for your team a sense of I belong and somebody cares about me personally and somebody knows that it's me personally, that makes a world of difference to the kind of working environment you develop, the satisfaction level of the employees and over, you know, naturally for the business, the productivity satisfaction employees, happy employees, employees that believe that they truly matter and belong are the ones that drive with a sense of purpose and that's absolutely what you want in a team and an organization. Absolutely. And I've been I've been very lucky in my hiring to have brought on a great, great group of people. Yeah. I've been saying to companies days who have been who have said they're gonna miss me, I'm, my answer is uh, the best is yet to be. Yeah. Talking about hiring and building that team, I mean, that is one of the, I think hiring great people is the key to success, but it's one of the hardest things to do too. I've always found hiring very difficult. Tell me, what do you look out for when you're interviewing? What What are the skills or what are the attributes that you can try and assess, you know, during that interview process that you're looking, that you're hoping to bring to add to the team? First off, a straightforwardness of approach. You know, this person good at looking you in the eye yep. uh, and really communicating directly as a human being, not putting on airs, you know, being pretty basic and showing some humility about what people know and don't know, being willing to say when they don't know something. That's yep. hard in an interview to say, you know, I just don't know. Yep. And yep. I'm, I'll probably get to tell you that sometimes as, as we yep. talk right now. And then obviously, you know, some subject matter expertise, some yep. ability to relate particular experiences and how problems were solved to the types of things that we're looking for, a vividness of example. Those are important. We also actually look for good writing skills and so forth, but that's not from the interview. Yeah, let's shift gear a little bit. You've talked a lot about, and you will have seen so much change in legal from a tech perspective. And I know that you, know, you, you predicted, I remember a few years ago, about the changes you expected in the delivery of legal services and the impact that technology was going to have on those delivery, on those services. A couple of questions I've got. How do you think that's panned out so far? Is it going more slowly or more quickly than you anticipated? That's one question. And then I'm going to dive into your own legal department and the impact of technology on that. But first to the delivery of legal services, what do you think so far in terms of the impact that technology has had? I think the answer to the faster or slower question is not narrowly confined to the, to the legal world. I think you have to look at that in the context of process automation in knowledge management industries more generally. Yep. I think the predictions of that have largely been fulfilled. That knowledge work has been transformed by the availability of networking. In the late 90s, there was a period of time when we had moved a lot of our sales and our ordering to online processes, and we were already a fairly large company. And there was one point in 1997 or 1998 where I believe Cisco, this is what I was told at the time, was about one third of the world's e-commerce. Wow. The fact that Cisco is today a tiny, yep. tiny fraction of the world's e-commerce isn't yep. a critique of Cisco. It's, it's yep. a sign of how much that has burgeoned. We were encouraged at the time to think, how do we demonstrate through what we do across the company that these technologies are transformative? Our corporate slogan at the time was changing the way the world lives, work, learns, and plays. Yeah. So very early on, we started implementing automation tools in Cisco Legal. By 1998, we had moved all of our corporate records online. If I were sitting in France where I worked, uh, 
and needed to see the minutes of the annual meeting of the Italian subsidiary, I could find the 1994 minutes just by clicking a button. We built an automated tool for doing non-disclosure agreements. We built the company's first approval process to automate approval so you didn't have to send around uh, those little envelopes, remember, that had the strings on them and inside a multi-part form and the magenta oh, form. Oh, I remember. the goldenrod form to another. I remember, right. I remember. We got, we, got rid of that. we got rid of that real early. Yeah. It became apparent. There, there, were, there were listeners out there thinking to themselves right now, what, what are they talking about back in the 90s? But I tell you, I mean, to be able to say you did that stuff, firstly, you got rid of that, and secondly, you had access to that kind of information online during that time, that was, that was a huge development given what was happening before that. so but, but I can well imagine there are listeners out there saying, it doesn't sound like such a big deal. <laughs> oh, it was a big deal then. And for yeah. some people, it still is. And I'll give, I'll give you an example of that. The legal world is sometimes the slowest to change, even after the Digital Signature Act was passed in the United States, which said that online signatures would be as valid as yeah. wet signatures. A lot of people who just wouldn't accept them. So we had a lot of work to do there. What became apparent, though, very quickly was that what didn't make sense for us to build all these tools ourselves. There's not scalability and benefits in that. If we can build an online non-disclosure tool, we weren't going to differentiate Cisco from our networking industry competitors because we offered online non-disclosure agreements. Yep. So what I needed to do is drive the cost down. So from the very get-go, I've been urging folks to invest in creating these tools. And by 2010, certainly there was a legal tech industry that where you could find people doing a lot of this work. And now, of course, it's a huge industry yeah. providing tools for lawyers. When I say that there's resistance even today, I'll give you an example. I was talking maybe five years ago with the general counsel of a large insurance company. And I was talking to him about this non-disclosure tool. I said, you know, do you have something like that? He said, oh, no, no, we don't. We think our agreements need to have, you know, wet signatures on them. We really want those non-disclosure agreements to have that. I said, oh, how about insurance policies? You know, if I'm a customer, I want to buy an auto policy. And this is a big company. I want to buy an auto insurance policy. Can I, you know, can I find the policy on my iPhone? Is there an app? He goes, oh, yeah, we're very proud of our apps. You can go in there. You can enter all your information. You can put in a credit card and we'll have the policy right there and you can see all the terms. And I was thinking this is so strange because the thing that is the core of their business, yep. issuing insurance policies, they were willing to do online through the app because the salespeople yep. figured out that's what they needed to do be, to be competitive. And the legal yep. department was still insisting on wet signatures on non-disclosure agreements. On NDAs. So, so, so I think yeah, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done there. Let's put it that yep. way. That's a good story. And so tell me, and what about the impact within Cisco's own legal department? What does that journey look like, the, the tech impact in the last, let's say, 10 years? And what does that look like in the past? And what, what do you think that's going to look like in the next five or 10 years? Well, what we've done is really looked at every segment of our business. And we've used a model that the business writer Jeffrey Moore developed called core and context. Some things that are core to the company are those that differentiate you from your competitors. Context means things you have to do to be an effective company, but yep. they don't competitively differentiate necessarily. For instance, having automated non-disclosure agreements is not a form of competitive differentiation. Yep. Uh, and then further divide that world into activities that are mission critical, meaning you better get them done right away, or not mission critical, which means you can figure out different ways to do it. My focus has been on core mission critical activities being done by our team. And that's our big sales agreements. It's business development, merger and acquisition work. Those are the things in engineering work, design, build, sell our products. So I've focused yep. 
80% roughly of the human resources of the team on those things. Things like big ticket litigation, human resources policies, compliance work, those are mission critical. But I can outsource a lot of that work to best of breed partners and have yep. small groups internally that can manage them. Every one of those four segments in that matrix of core context, mission critical, not mission critical, I say, what can I do in this space to automate and simplify this work? So we've built really very highly sophisticated template engines and contract management engines for the core work of our design, build, and sell our products, and great tools for managing our mergers and acquisitions and, and deal rooms and clause libraries and so forth for the contracts and for, for keeping track of the deals that the companies had that we acquire. On the litigation side, we built our own e-discovery lab before there were great tools out there and then migrated to outside tools once the industry, and it's a big it industry, caught up. had caught up yep. to be able to do yeah. that. But we had some pretty rudimentary but helpful tools to reduce the corpus of materials and lower the cost of discovery. On the non-mission critical work, it's things like those non-disclosure agreements or work we did to track individual patent applications, where we were able to build tools to simplify, automate the process, track the data very well. And so each of those spaces, I say to myself, what can we do to simplify and automate? What's happened is in each of those spaces, there are now outside players doing a great job at building tools that will manage those. So there's less and less that we have to build ourselves more and more that we're just choosing a vendor and making sure there's interoperability. That's interesting. Are there areas that you look at now saying, well, we still need to invest and build internally here because the legal tech world hasn't caught up yet? Well, let, let me be clear that yeah. the legal tech world is there in a lot of spaces, but there are a lot of yeah. places where we're still doing things that the legal tech world hasn't done. And there are a lot of things that are proprietary to Cisco where we need to do it ourselves, where it has to tie into our order management system. It has to tie into our use of Salesforce so that the deals the salespeople work, are working on is immediately visible to the legal people that are supporting them. So our legal tech team internally continues to grow as we do right. this, but the availability of tools externally has grown faster than that. Yeah, interesting. Tell me about having had the benefit of your experience and seen the role of general counsel. I'd like to understand from you, how do you think it's changed over the last 20 or so years? And what do you think it's going to take in the next, let's say, five or 10 years for GCs to keep ahead of the game? The skills, the perhaps some of the stuff that law school might not have taught. I'd like to get your, your sense on you know the development of the role and the future development of the general counsel role. Well, I first became a general counsel of a public company in 1988 when I was general counsel of Maxdoor. So it's a long time ago. 33 years. And at that time, I think that the the in-house job was primarily one of managing contracts and making sure the legal stuff got taken care of and disappeared. Yep. And that's still one way to think of the job is that what you want is to have a legal department that operates in general the way a good antivirus program does, which is it's always scanning, it's always doing its job, and you really don't need to know that it's even there. Yep. In fact, if you know it's there, it means something's gone wrong. So, so I've, always, I've always thought of that. How am I able to accelerate the business, smooth things out, and be largely invisible in an operational sense? So that's one piece that's been consistent. But at that time, the general counsel didn't always have a seat at the table in board yep. meetings or as a report to the CEO and so on. And I think the legislative reaction in the U.S. to the tech downturn 
and to the fallout from all the failures at that time in 2001 and the enactment of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act in the United States changed that and gave the general counsel a, a more central role in the control and reporting functions of the company. Now, that change in role and bringing the GC to a seat at that table meant that the skill sets that were required were different. Yeah. And a general counsel who came to that with a purely compliance mindset, I'm going to figure out, you know, I'm going to find the miscreants, I'm going to punish them. I don't think we're as successful as those who said, I have this seat at the table, but the purpose of that is to help make sure we make right business decisions, which isn't just the more narrow compliance focus, but it's right business decisions on the growth side as well. Yep. So all of a sudden, because that position of the GC changed, the successful GCs were the ones who were able to use that seat at the table to actually be part of the growth story of the company. And that's changed the nature of, of the function in terms of what you had to be good at to be really successful. I like the way you put that actually, to be part of the growth story of the company. And I take it looking forward, you'd have that as a key attribute. You'd want your GC to be able to contribute to that growth story and have the skill sets and the mindset to do so. Yeah, I can't imagine a company trying to hire a GC without taking yep. that into account right now. Yeah. Whereas that wasn't, it wasn't so important when I became a GC in 1988. Yep. It was important to make sure the stuff got done, maybe to be able to work with the sales team to get the contracts closed. It became important when it was a differentiator between general counsel who made a difference in the company and those who played a much more narrow role. Mark, one question I like to ask on this podcast is, what advice would you give to your 25-year-old self? I look at different pivot points in my career. Yep and what led me on the path I'm on. And there's one way I can tell my story where it seems like it's all very smooth progression. Another way that is completely random. And I think the random version is closer to the truth. Yeah. There's a lot of serendipity in life. At those points when serendipity created an opportunity, I found myself listening to people who believed I could do something more than I could believe it. And that turned out to be a good decision. Oh. So that's the advice I give to every 25-year-old, actually, which is that if you're offered an opportunity and you're a little nervous about your ability to do it, the people you trust tell you you can do it, people who know you tell you can do it, believe them and go for it. That's a fantastic answer, I've say, and really consistent with a theme that we hear a lot, being open to opportunities, how, how much serendipity does play a part. But when you put those two together, when you put chance and open to opportunity together, that's a fantastic cocktail. But the, the other point you made, and I talk about that a lot too, if you can put yourself in a position when you believe in someone more than they believe in themselves, that's what people need, someone else to believe in them more than they can actually believe in themselves. And so you put those three things together, opportunity, serendipity, and somebody who believes in you. I think that is a fantastic mix and that's, that lets people bring you know, the best out of themselves and make the right decisions to choose those opportunities. So uh, I really like the way you put that. Though, to say yeah. people who don't really believe in themselves, it may be that people are just a little bit humble and yep. want to make sure they know what they're doing. And then yep. it's good to be reinforced by someone outside that you trust. Yeah. I'm not sure if so much as not believing in oneself, but being able to get more out of oneself and someone believing that you're, you're capable. I just think it's such a powerful factor. Absolutely. We need not just mentors, but we need advocates. 
yep. as allies who are with us and and helping push us forward a little bit. Yep. Yep. What are you most proud of, both professionally and personally, Mark? Well, on the professional side, I'm most proud of the amazing team that we've built, the great people that I get to work with and that I've helped assemble. I've been accused at times of trying to build a dinner party instead of a legal department because I have <laughs> you know, smart, engaged, interesting people and people you'd want to be at a dinner party because they're high integrity as well. Yep. But those community skills are really important. Yep. So I'm really proud of building the team because that's that's where the legacy is. And there's never a happier day for me at Cisco than when one of my peers or my boss says to me, you know, I worked with so-and-so from your team and she is, did an absolutely fabulous job. Yeah. And I say, great, I've done my job. And that also lets me feel very, very good about the future of the company and what I've built and what will go on uh, after I leave. Yeah. On the personal side, I don't like to think of in terms of pride because there are, there are old sayings about what happens to those who are too proudful. But I feel that I have some wonderful friends who've been with me through my life, I have great children. I have a wonderful spouse, and I feel uh, I feel good that that I am very lucky and blessed that I have those in my life. Well, you, you can't ask for for much more. My children, my children are all happy, and yep. it's been, I've heard someone say, "You're only happy as your least happy child." And yep. right now, my my kids are thirty five, thirty three, and twenty eight. I have stepdaughters who are 21, 18, and 16, and they're all in a pretty happy place. And that, oh, that's so fantastic that, to that hear. That gives me a great amount of personal satisfaction. Yeah. yeah. One of the other things we hear on this podcast too is um, when I ask people to reflect, it, they never talk about what they did or their achievements. They always talk about the impact they've had on others and the team, and you've done exactly the same thing there. Just to finish us off, now, Mark, what does the future look like for you? What, what, what's in your mind about what might interest you moving forward? We talk about what we don't talk about, but I've certainly heard people talk about you kind of need three things, someone to love, something to do, something to look forward to. <laughs> what are you looking forward to? What am I looking forward to? You know, I have lived and breathed Cisco now for 25 years, 20 as yep. general counsel, virtually 24. So I'm looking forward to not waking up at three in the morning and thinking I should look at yeah. <laughs> But that's that's a that's a not something I'm looking forward to not doing. I yep. do see a lot of opportunities to take things I've learned and apply them in some spaces that are very relevant. For instance, I've been involved, I've been on the board of the Law Foundation of Silicon Valley, which provides legal services. I'm on an advisory committee at the Legal Services Corporation, which is a federally funded organization that supports legal services around the country. I'm on the governing council of the American Bar Association Center for Innovation, which is trying to help the established bar appreciate the advantages of application of technology to, to the work that's being done. And what I've seen over and over is that in the legal services world, in particular, because of various court rules around the country and the very limited funding that these organizations have, there hasn't been the kind of investment there should be in automation, yeah. systematization, that would really improve efficiency and throughput. And this is through no fault of the organizations. They try extremely hard with the resources that they have, but there are just too many inconsistencies. And one thing I'd like to engage in is see if I can leverage the contacts I have in government and in the bar and elsewhere to in the foundation world, because uh, there are a lot of organizations that do funding for uh, legal services world 
to put together an effort to drive some consolidation of approaches that would then create the incentives for legal tech to be able to play that same kind of role in legal services. Uh, right now in the United States and around the world, there's a great focus on access to justice and disparities in access to resources that come about for historical reasons, whether it's a region or race or other factors. And this is a great opportunity in a way that is win-win. There's no zero-sum game here to improve access to justice and make that system move, system work more effectively. And I'd love to find some ways to put a lot of energy and effort into making that happen. Mark Chandler, thank you so much for your time. I've had an absolute blast speaking to you. The very best of luck for the next phase of your career. Well, th thanks so much, Jim. And I, I promise you it's going to include a lot of skiing too. So I'm, Fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. Great to speak to you. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you. 